Well, my family spent the 4th of July this year in a little coastal town called Cayucas. I'm not sure if you've ever been down there. It's near San Luis Obispo. And uh, in this little city, every year, 4th of July is kind of a big deal for them. They, they have people travel in from all over the place. They have a lot of festivities going on. There was a great 4th of July parade that we got to experience there. And one of the fun things that they do on the 4th of July is that every year they hold a sandcastle building competition on the morning of the 4th. And so uh, they begin at 5 a.m. and they work as fast as they can until 8 a.m. They've got three hours to complete their creations out there on the beach, right there next to the shoreline. And each creation usually takes a team of several people to build because there's a lot of labor involved. There's a lot of digging. You got to bring sand in from other areas. You got to Buckets of water you got to bring in to pat down your creation so it doesn't dry out and crumble to the ground. you got to make it stay all together. So it's, it's a quite an ordeal. And I think there were probably close to 25 or 30 teams out there building these giant artistic creations. As the sun rises, the public begins to filter down to the shoreline to observe the artistic uh, creations that these artists have made. There's a massive castle that somebody put together. They had dug out inside of the turrets of the castle. There were lights, LED lights that they put inside, and then stained glass on the outside. There was a giant hillside with, with hundreds of small trees that were made with a piping bag. And then they had put little figurines all over this mountainside to create little storylines. It was, it was amazing. There was a great big sea crab that had literally hundreds of sea dollars. I don't know about you, but every time I go to the beach looking for a sea dollar, all I can find is like smashed little bits. These people had managed to find hundreds of sea dollars over the years and had decorated the whole shell of the sea crab with these sea dollars. It was really impressive. There was a team that had built the back end of a 57 Chevy in detail coming out of the beach as if somebody had jumped it off of a ramp and landed in the beach. It was, it was really impressive to see what these people could do with their talents and their imagination. Now, for the people who come down to view these things, there's only a short window of time for the spectators to ooh and awe over what was made. Because by 11 a.m., the Pacific tide has shifted upwards. And millions of gallons of water will have taken all of man's hard work, all of their creative talent, and laid it to waste. And absolutely pulled it all right back out into the sea. What was once an art gallery is now once again a perfectly blank canvas. And so as I stood there with my family on the shoreline taking all this in, I couldn't help but be reminded of the preacher of Ecclesiastes and the observations that he has made from the perspective of someone who is trying to see if he can find meaning and fulfillment apart from the providence of God. Just in the world that we live in, on their own efforts and man's own strength, can there be fulfillment? Can there be purpose and meaning? So far, this preacher has concluded that the hard work of man can't really mean much if it's eventually just going to go away. We're so often occupied by the temporary. We've seen the preacher gather wisdom. We've seen the preacher see if pursuing pleasure will fulfill him and make him happy and content. We've seen him go after great achievements as he's tried to build his empire and do great works that will be remembered for generations. And yet, with this great fixation that we have on the temporary, really in our hearts, we're longing for something more. We are longing for the permanent. Last week, Pastor Paul preached 
us into this next section of Ecclesiastes. He noted that there's a real change of tone as we enter into chapter 3. King Solomon has been trying to do this all from a man's perspective without God's help. There's a phrase that's been used again and again that as he's observing all the things that are under the sun, he's indicating to us that he's just trying to do this man's way. But the frustrations that have been mounting his heart as he's tried to do this man's way have inevitably turned his attention away from the limited power of man and back to the infinite sovereignty of Almighty God. As he reflects on God's undeniable control over every aspect of life, the preacher declares that the will of God has caused everything that happens under the sun to happen for a reason and in a time that he has determined from life to death, from war to peace, and everything in between, nothing happens apart from God's plan and permission. Verses 9 through 15 this morning will expand upon that reality and will add some editorial commentary that helps us to see how we should make sense of this contrast of man's temporary abilities and God's permanent sovereign will. So we're in chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 9 through 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks that what, what has been driven away. So verse 9 marks the end of the poetic portion of chapter 3 and returns to this mode of reflection and philosophizing. The preacher asks in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? This is not the first time he's asked this question. He's been trying to determine the answer to this question for two chapters now. But in light of the observations that God is powerfully involved in the unfolding of every circumstance in life, the preacher is compelled to revisit it here. Apart from the big picture purposes of God, man has little to nothing to gain from his toils. All of our work, all of our efforts, all of our understanding cannot solve the grand questions of life if we are ignoring the God who allows everything to happen for a reason. Even if man is able to find earthly success and secure a prosperous life for himself, no amount of toil can fend off death, can it? And all that we can accumulate will one day fall into the hands of someone else because we're not going to be around to enjoy it. So toil, apart from God, is ultimately empty and ineffective. But when one embraces the fact that God knows all that man fails to know, then one's perspective can begin to change. He can interpret toil in a new light. And that's what the preacher is driving us to this morning. 
toil and labor, when seen as a means to meaning, as a platform for purpose, leaves everything to be desired. But when we begin to see our toil not as the answer to life's big questions, but as God's means to fulfill His perfect plan in our lives, then toil isn't a frustrating, a frustrating failure anymore. It is a valuable part of a greater whole that God has prepared for His people. The dilemma is beginning to come into better focus as we begin to bring God back into the equation, isn't it? And so verse 10 again, he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So keeping in mind that God is sovereign, keeping in mind that he is the one who sets the time for every season under heaven, the preacher sees that God has given a task to men. He has given us an assignment, something to occupy our time, something to aim for. It is a problem that God wants us working on, though you might notice in the scripture here that it does not say God gave it to man so that he might solve it on his own. The problem that he wants us working on is this concept of eternity. What is this eternity that God has placed, here it says, in our hearts? Of course, he's talking about in our, in our soul, in the, in the center of our being, in our consciousness. What is this eternity? Has not the preacher already laid the foundation for this understanding for us? Through all of his strivings, the preacher has accomplished much, but it doesn't satisfy him because he knows it will not last. When he's finished with this task, another one will present itself. There is no finality to it. All the goods that he has accumulated are fine and good, but one day the preacher's going to die and they're going to be given to someone else. How can they satisfy him if they're temporary? Any great progress that he makes will just have to be made again later because the way of the world is death. Things are falling apart and degrading as time marches on. So in, in many ways, the preacher has already described to us what this eternity is. It is a longing for something more. The eternity that God has put into our hearts is a desire for everlasting life that we cannot hope to acquire apart from God himself. A desire for a permanent state. A desire to cast off this curse of death that we have rightfully earned by our sinfulness. But there is a little word there in the text that should stand out to us as we read those, those few verses we just went over again. Look at verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart yet. Underline yet, circle yet. So that he cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's a huge problem to this task that he has given to us. God has also not just given us the task, but he's made it, made it so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, the eternity that we yearn for is a concept too big for us to solve with our finite human minds. We can't grasp it. We can't solve it. So is God to be seen as cruel for doing this to us? Is God a big bully that he would give us this task but not give us the ability to unravel the problem ourselves? Is this the equivalent of asking a blind man to solve a Rubik's Cube? God has said, here's eternity, figure it out. He's put the yearning into us but he hasn't put the solution into us. 
Friends, our inability to solve this dilemma is an important thing for us to grasp. God gives us a task that will thoroughly frustrate us so that we will stop looking to ourselves, we will stop looking to the material world that we live in and see that there is no alternative but to return to Him according to His sovereign plan. Here the barrier between earth and heaven must be breached. We see that there is no such thing as life under the sun in the strict sense of man existing apart from God. God is undeniably involved in the affairs of man. And the fact that God is assigning a task points to his rule and his reign over the created realm. Looking beyond the material, looking beyond the created world is absolutely necessary for us because the desire for resolution lies inside of man but the answer lies outside of man. Unless we get over the sun, unless we look beyond what we can see and hear and touch and smell here on earth, then we will not find any meaningful purpose or lasting resolution. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The declaration of verse 11 has in view the first eight verses of chapter 3. That there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. And that God has determined every event according to his own sovereign plan. All things work together the way that God intends for them to. So life is not this random roll of the dice from one minute to the next. It is not a, a chaotic scramble to get what you can. God is comp accomplishing His beautiful will through every little detail of existence, whether we can see the purpose behind it or not. Amen. If we can begin to get a glimpse of what God is doing in the times and the seasons that march ever onward in obedience to His guiding hand, then they can become beautiful to us as well. Rather than this big frustrating puzzle that we cannot solve, we can see it as a tapestry that God is skillfully weaving a beautiful plan that unfolds a little bit at a time that we get to be pervy to as we watch and see this God exalting himself and glorifying the Son and, and showing us his spirit through the circumstances of life. I once watched a, a Christian painter. His name was Rick Alonzo. He came to our church uh, many years ago, I think 2006, a long time ago. He was doing some performing art. He's an interesting guy. Um, and so he would be on stage and he would paint his creations to music right before you'd get to watch him do it. And it was pretty interesting to see the, the skills that God had given this man. And I remember one particular painting that he did. And he's, he's creating this, uh, this black big canvas. He's painting all over it and he's doing it to music. And as I watch each stroke, I'm trying to think, what is this? What is he trying to develop here? I, I couldn't quite get what he was doing. I felt like that that uh, civilian in the, in the museum. Everyone else is looking at this big old splattered thing on the wall and they're scratching their chin and saying, yes, yes. And I'm thinking, that looks like a mess to me. I don't, I don't get it, right? I, I can't, I'm, it's, it's beyond my comprehension. So I'm thinking that's me right here as I'm watching this guy and he's doing all these dramatic paint strokes and he's making these lines and these splatters and these blocks and these impressions and I just can't get it. It was hard for me to appreciate it because I didn't know what he was doing. I found myself straining to understand what he was trying to accomplish, but unable to do so. And then all of a sudden, 
he takes this giant piece of art and he flips it upside down and then suddenly, in an instant, you can see exactly what he was painting. He painted the whole thing upside down, which is from a perspective you don't expect it to come from. And it's, it's a portrait, I think, of a, of a shepherd caring for his sheep. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember thinking, whoa, I, I didn't see it until just now. But every stroke was purposeful. Every choice of color had intention. There was a product that he desired to make at the end. And just because his mind was working differently than mine, it didn't mean it was a waste. Sometimes the will of God works like this. He doesn't allow you to see exactly why he's doing things the way that he's doing them. But when you come to trust the ability of this God, when you come to draw near to him and you find out that his character and his nature has utter integrity, that he is a God of power that will not be stopped, that he's a God of truth that does not lie or deceive, that he is a God of love and mercy and tenderness, then you begin to relax and understand that even if you don't know everything that he's doing, whatever it turns out to be in the end will be good for you and glorifying to him. Just because you don't necessarily understand the ways of God that does not mean that the ways of God are not good. If you're frustrated by the sovereignty of God, if you're frustrated that God has not bothered to give you a dossier of everything that's going to happen this year, then I encourage you, friends, to think about God from a different perspective, to begin to see yourself not as the one who must solve the problem, but as the audience who gets to look upon with wonder and awe as God solves every aspect of it for you. There's a particular psalm that's dear to most Christians. You've probably recognized the words at the beginning of it in Psalm 23. If you know it, you can say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? A simple line, a timeless line. People have, have recited it when they're hurting. People have shared it at a funeral to give peace to those who have lost a loved one. But think about that one simple line. There's a lot more said in that psalm. But it begins with this concept, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It acknowledges the humble state of man, that we are not the shepherd, but we are sheep. It acknowledges that if we were to try to lead and guide and protect ourselves, that we would fall utterly short of that task. When the Lord is not your shepherd, there is so much that you want in this life. There is such a, a void of purpose and meaning. There is such a, an absence, a vacuum of truth when the Lord is not your shepherd. There is such a great big question mark facing you as you walk forward into a future that is unknown when you don't know that the shepherd is there by your side comforting you with his rod and his staff, knowing where to go, knowing that the valley is dark, but there is light on the other side. There is so much that I lack and that I yearn for when the Lord Jesus is not my shepherd. But when the relationship between God and man is right, when we are depending on our master, when we are trusting in his greater wisdom, when we are counting on him to guide and protect us, we will not have some insatiable desire for what we cannot obtain because we'll be resting in the reality that it's going to be provided for us by one who is greater than us. The last part of verse 11 reminds us 
that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Yes, it is on display for us, but we cannot comprehend it. And this reminds us of one of the great names of this God that we've come to glorify and worship today, that he is Alpha and Omega. Nothing occurs outside of his knowledge. Nothing happens apart from his power. He is vastly greater than we have the capability of even grasping. And once we accept that, once we begin to realize that the answer to life's great problems don't lie in here, they lie up there, then life's simple circumstances can become much more enjoyable to us. The book of Ecclesiastes is not teaching us that the heathen enjoys the world, but the godly person abstains from every joy or happiness, every little thing that could make them smile. That's not what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. Look again at 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Where does this come from? This is God's gift to man. This enjoyment is not the attitude of one who has given up on life and said, well, there is no meaning. There is no eternity. When I'm done here, it's over. So I might as well just enjoy my food and my drink and my experiences and all the tactile things that I can, uh, I can sensory experience in this life. I'm just going to enjoy the moment. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying there is a future. There is an eternity. And it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. So enjoy the ride. Let the sovereign God of the universe carry you through every set of circumstances. It might not always be what you want it to be. It might always look how you prayed for it to look. But the God who you are praying to knows what you need. He is, he is good and faithful to you. And when He's in charge, you can enjoy the life that He has given to you. With meaning, the beauty of reality comes into focus. And the normal details of life can be taken for what they should be. Man can experience joy. Man can seek to do good and find contentment knowing that his actions correspond with this benevolent providence that comes from the Father. And so we see the real value of chapter 3 here. Unsolvable frustrations with the material world have driven the preacher back to the thoughts of God himself and the character that makes him so unique and worthy of worship. As Paul preached last week, God is a sovereign God. And now here in verses 14 and 15, we see that God is so much more than just sovereign. His characteristics are myriad. He is a God who is immutable. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now I understand that good exposition would say that, okay, the Lord's just talking about what he does here, but we can look beyond this text and see that the Lord God not only does things that last forever, but he is a God who himself lasts forever. He is a God who is, by his very character, unchangeable. And that is hard for us to understand. One of the most significant facts about God, though, is that he never changes. When you are perfect, think about this, when you are perfect, and none of us is, so we don't have much experience in this realm, right? But if God is a perfect God, any change made to who He is can only be a change for the worse. He cannot improve. He is already perfection. Any variation in His nature and His being would devolve what has already been 
displayed to us as being without flaw, completely perfect. What he is now, he will ever be. What he is now, he has ever been. And that's so outside of human experience. What I do as a man does not endure. And that's frustrating to me. I'm always a person in the process of becoming. I'm always trying to become wiser. I'm always trying to become more pure. I'm always, not always actually, sometimes I'm not trying to be more pure and I should be. But I'm always a person in progress. Sometimes my progress is good. And then the next day, I take three steps backwards. And I've got to redo everything that I did the day before. Human beings are constantly in flux and change and transition. That is part of the reason why Paul drew attention to this, this different meaning of the word vanity that we see so often in the book of Ecclesiastes. When we think of vanity, it's not just that it seems to be something that isn't something, but when you see a mist, which is what the word vanity truly means, you see a mist, you see that mist is not going to stay. It's going to burn off. If you've gone to San Francisco in the morning and stayed into the afternoon, it doesn't look the same in the morning that it does in the afternoon, does it? That fog that covers the city and brings a coolness to the city, it burns off by two or three in the afternoon. So it is a transitory gas, this mist, this vapor. Man is like vanity like that. We, we change. We, we, we're not the same today as we were a year ago. And so it's hard for us to grab onto this immutable quality that defines our God. He lacks nothing, so he needs not make any progress. He doesn't have to work on anything in himself he is what he always should be. He is a finished product. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is himself so radically complex and beautiful that what he is will always be beyond our full knowledge. The vast reserve of his glory will never be exhausted. And that means that when we have been in heaven for 10,000 years, basking in the glory of all that God has shown to us, we will still be worshiping Jesus in wonder. Think about that. He will still be wonderful to us. Not something that we completely understand from beginning to end, from bottom to top. We will still be marveling at how unique and different and perfect that he is, anticipating how much more of God there is to learn as we go into the next 10,000 years and the next Think about how different that is than the satisfactions we get from this world. Some of you probably have a favorite series on Netflix, TV show that you like, and you enjoyed it so much you went back and you watched it over again, right? Great, great use of time. We're all great stewards of time here, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe you've tried to watch it a third time. It's just not as fun again, is it? The jokes don't have the pop that they used to. It's nice for a chuckle, but it never has that sense of discovery that you experienced the first time you watched it through because the things of this world only have so much to give to you. The God who made this world is an endless resource of wonder. You can enjoy him completely differently than you enjoy the things of the world because when you use up something in the world, you've got to go on to the next thing. You cannot use up God. You cannot exhaust his beauty. You cannot understand every detail of his being because he is so much greater than you are. Do not love God according to the pattern of worldly love. Some people treat God like they treat that TV show. Okay, God, what are you going to do for me new today? You got to do something new. Give me a new blessing. Give me a new thing. Instead of enjoying God for who he is. 
You've got to learn to love all over again when you come to this God who doesn't get exhausted, who doesn't get worn out, who never expires. We have to learn to love him for the stability of this God who is steadfast and who will not be corrupted, who will not be set off his course. He is a God who is steady and true and strong, and we should learn to love him for those qualities. Unlike the things of this world which appeal to us based on their novelty and their newness, their creativity, God is glorious not because of what he might become, not because of the prospect of the possibility of goodness. He is good because of what he is right now and what he always will be. Verse 15 says, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks that which has been driven away. Though you and I are not immutable, though our susceptibility to change means that we don't love him the way we ought to, as a good shepherd, he seeks that which is driven away. He's going to send his son, Jesus Christ, right? The, New, the Old Testament uh, believer in Yahweh didn't know yet who Christ would be, but God had every intention of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to put to death the, 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 the debt of sin that man owed to God, so that we might be reconciled to this God of marvel, this God of wonder, this God who is so incredible and different from everything else that we have experienced. So God here in chapter 3 has given man a job to do, a job that God knows we cannot do on our own. He has put eternity into our hearts, a yearning for something beyond what we can see. He has engineered into us this longing to grasp the greater truths of the universe, truths that are far beyond our capacity for comprehension. He doesn't do this to taunt us or to be cruel to us. He does it because he knows that the best gift that he can give to us is closeness to himself. And that closeness can only be achieved through a relationship of faith. A relationship that we approach, whereby we approach the creator of all things, the one who holds the mysteries of life in his hands with a reverent trust, with a respect and an awe. And we willingly allow him to lead us through the mysteries of life, believing that whatever he has ordained will come to pass. And whatever he chooses to let us experience must be ultimately for our good and for his glory. <clears throat> the vanity of life is not entirely solved for the person who trusts this sovereign, immutable God. We still see the endless cycles playing out. We still lack that complete understanding regarding the reasons why things happen the way that they do. So we will still sometimes be frustrated with life here on earth. It'll become bothersome to us at times. We'll find ourselves bored at times with what this world has to offer. But the overarching purpose that we have in the Lord God is more than enough to overcome these challenges. And their presence ensures us that we'll continue to yearn for a better country, for a heavenly season, a time when all that God has put into the heart of man will be fulfilled in glory when he returns to bring his people to Zion and justice is complete once and for all. May he be glorified in all of these things. We are grateful today, uh, this morning, that our ability to enjoy this life is fundamentally dependent on our relationship with the God who is sovereign over all time. 